you're listening to the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. I'm Gandalf. I'm Matt. And I'm Nathan Van Horn. The Bible is the most read book ever, but to some, it is merely fiction. Join our conversations as we connect the dots to reveal that the story of the Bible is not only true, it's better than fiction. To learn more about the show or to contact us directly, visit us online at www.betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. Welcome back, listener, to episode 31 of the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast, and we're excited today to welcome you to a momentous episode because the long-awaited promised land is here. We are finally out of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Not that our time there was not profitable, but we know that we've been there for a long time, so it's now time for a breath of fresh air as we transition to um, the catastrophic cleansing of all mankind off of the face of the earth. You know, all that, all that uh, normal, familiar stuff. So the breath of fresh air right before the plunge. And we're going to celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> Into water? That's right. And we're going to celebrate the plunge and the breath of fresh air by, uh, believe it or not, talking about where we've been. Yeah, every, every, time, y'all say, every time y'all say something clever, I think you're trying to take a segue from me. Oh, like sorry. My, I'm just I'm I'm very damaged in that in that sense. Very. If, if we're not careful, Nathan Van Horn's going to have to unionize to keep his keep his segues intact. We, we've taken so much from I, him. I, I need these guarantees if the podcast yes. is going to continue. There it is. Well, yes. Nathan, here's what we'll always assure you: we'll always assure you that one, you you will always be the most intelligent person on the podcast, Amen. and two, you will always get to say shalom at the end of the episode. I go. really shalom is enough for me. Y'all know so much. First of all, I'm not the most intelligent person on the podcast. Second of all, shalom is enough for me. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, so this is not to to rehash Genesis 6, 1 through 4, because I've had my uh, fill of the Nephilim, personally. Uh, it's It's been a giant undertaking. Oh, ah, there it is. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. Uh, but, but anyway. Expect I, a contract next week in writing. <laughs> So I do think, though, uh, as I've reflected on this, and I mentioned in the previous episode that the more I read the Bible, the more I am convinced that I need to read the Bible more carefully. Uh, There are just some big things here, not just in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, but Genesis chapter 4 through Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, that we have covered ever since we've gotten out of Eden. There are some themes and some Chekhov gun things that are just huge themes that we're going to see future biblical characters tap into that, frankly, I've just read right over. And some of these, some of these have been deeply meaningful. Like uh, uh, I was in between softball games for my children the other day, and I, I was reflecting on the text. And uh, Nathan, we call, call, I called you, and we talked for a few minutes because you had a drive. And it's just, you know, uh, you know, I'm not one to necessarily just pick up the phone and call somebody to talk about the Bible. I mean, I do that occasionally, but that's how much this text has affected me of reading the Bible more carefully, of just realizing not just the beauty of the text, but the, man, the, the character of God that's revealed through the text. So that's, and that's yeah, that's, yeah, that's the, that's the reason, today. that's the reason, you know, I th- like you said, when we finished up Eden, Eden gets this terrible reputation of God overreacting 
to mankind cheating on its diet, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, I mean, when we parsed out Eden, I think when you actually pay attention to the details and the grace of God in the midst of their sin, I think God's character comes forth differently in that passage. And I think that's why this is worth wrapping up. Um, Because so often, like we've said, when people talk about the flood or look at the flood, it's always just as the flood rather than in the flow of the context of Genesis 1 through 6. And it's because we make Genesis 4 until the flood flyover country. We don't bear Mm. down on those details, and so we can't appreciate the story that's being told, uh, how the flood fits into that story, and what God's character is in that story. Right? Right. Um, uh, And so... uh, Matt, I, you know, you said to me the other day, uh, you know, we, we talked about in an episode about God, you know, the 120 years, um, overwhelmingly in early interpretation, we see it in Jewish and Christian interpretation, that the 120 years doesn't seem to be a limiting of the lifespan of mankind. And, and there are several exceptions to that within the biblical text after that. Uh, it seems to be this period for repentance, Yes. Right? And, and, and and what moved you so much to call me the other day is you were reading the flood narrative. Just quick, we won't camp out on this today, but uh, you were reading, I think, in Genesis 7. And you're like, man, even after Noah and his family are on the ark, the 120 years for repentance is up. There's still another seven days before the waters are unleashed. Right. Um, right. And, 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 you know, I, I said, yeah, that, that sends my mind to Jonah. Jonah is sent with, uh, you know, this very brief message in 40 days. Nineveh will be destroyed. And there's no chance for mercy in the way that Jonah preaches that. Just in 40 mm-hmm. days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And yet almost immediately, what do the Ninevites do? They repent and they appeal to the merciful character of God. Here, the characters have 120 years plus one week. And you right. never see that from them. And so, uh, again, if I think if you look at God's character outside of the context of the story, Anytime God judges, if you look at it in a vacuum, you'll say, well, who is that guy to judge? But God's judgment is always tempered by this merciful patience, uh, by by a chance to repent, even if one is not stated. Right? Right. You, you uh, know and, what? That actually, um, that, that brings up a thought to me, because you're talking about how, you know, Jonah was not giving the Ninevites. He didn't say, unless you repent, Nineveh's going to be destroyed. He just showed up and said, this is what's going to happen forever and ever. Amen. Well, and then later he pouts because he said, God, I knew when you sent me to Nineveh, I just knew what was going to happen because I know your gracious character. I knew you were going to save them, you know? Yes. And so, uh, you know, one thing Matt has uh, repeatedly talked about, this is so big to Matt and it's become bigger to me. Um, Even where the character of God is not outright stated, it is assumed. Why do you have so many people throughout scripture, even in the context of judgment, appealing to God's mercy if they fundamentally fundamentally believe that he's not merciful. Right. Mm. Right. It uh, just makes me wonder uh, how many, like how many times was somebody within the ability to be spared, but then they, in the Bible and then they didn't, they didn't Mm. ask for mercy. It makes me wonder like, what is God's track record? How many times does somebody ask for mercy and then God doesn't give it to them? Mm. I, I, I want to see some stats on that. Because every time that I'm thinking about, for the most part, I know of a couple of exceptions, every time that someone's like, hey, please forgive me, most of the time that comes to my mind, God's going, okay, sure. You know, I, it's it's interesting. I think about Jeremiah when uh, God tells Jeremiah not to pray for mercy because he says, I, we're not, you know, don't pray for mercy because it's almost like God's saying, uh, I'll have to be merciful if you pray 
and I, 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 we don't need to be merciful right now. We, it's actually time for some judgment. I mean, I, I don't want to portray that God's mercy and God's wrath are in conflict with each other. But uh, I think it's better to be understood they're in concert, that all of God does what all of God does. Uh, I think A.W. Tozer said that. Uh, but, but however, we're seeing from the story, again, just a very patient God. I was listening to a talk given by a uh, uh, professor. I don't know if he still teaches. Does Pete Enns still teach, Nathan? Uh, I yeah, I think he does. I think, okay, he's well, at East, I think he's at Eastern University. Okay. Anyway, Peter Enns, um, who was, was at one time evangelical. I don't think he identifies as evangelical anymore. But anyway, Peter Enns was basically arguing that we, the, the Bible should not be seen as a book for children, you know, he said, we make that whole story about Noah and the ark thing. And, you know, it's really a graphic, terrible thing. You know, he said, just think about it. He said, you're only just a few pages into the Bible and God gets completely ticked off and kills everyone. And frankly, and now Peter Enns is a genius. Don't get me wrong. He's a well-accomplished scholar, but that's just not what I'm picking up reading the text in a more careful way. I'm actually, What's shining out to me is the overwhelming patience. So we've talked about the pseudepigraphal work of Enoch. So it's not authoritative. So how much of it is helpful, true, we don't know. But in the pseudepigraphal work of Enoch, like the actions that were described by the human beings and the watchers that they did before the flood, like killing each other, drinking each other's blood, you know, human sacrifice, all kinds of the all kinds of terrible, terrible things. Like, this is the kind of behavior, because, you know, the text is going to say that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great. Could you imagine if, like, you know, cannibalism, human sacrifice, all those kinds of terrible things, if we were in charge, would we give people 120 years to change those habits before we did something? Mm. Like, no way. We would be like, man, like, you act on that right now. We got to stop this right, right now. And so that is the kind of patience that God is exhibiting, not because he cares, you know, nothing of sin. It's because he cares so much about his creatures. Mm. Well, you know, it must have been terrible. Like, I mean, the actual wording is that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. Right. That's, That's some pretty strong language because we, you know, we've just come off of the, uh, the story of Cain and Abel, right? I mean, you know, that's one-fourth mm. of the entire population, you know, mm. committed a terrible act. Not to mention in the light of, you know, the other the, the other two guys messed up in a huge way in Eden. And even then, God wasn't tempted to, like, you know, you don't see God's going, hmm, maybe I should wipe out all of humanity, these four guys that right. messed up royally. Mm. Uh, but, but, yeah, but going I, back, I, Nathan, you pointed out when we were in the Cain and Abel, the grace given to Cain. Like, he should have been ground into powder, and yet God allowed him to live on and have a family and have— Yeah, and, uh, I, and I, It's just yeah, amazing to me. I, I guess sometimes what, I, what, I, what I'm reacting against, too, is, is not just the unbelieving critique of, oh, you know, there's your God that wants to wipe out the world, but sometimes the, the believing stance is when this story gets ripped out of the context— is just like God is sovereign and he doesn't owe anyone an explanation. I almost see 
it's almost like God is willing to hold his sus- his sovereignty suspect in light of his mercy. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. Mm-hmm. I'm so uh, glad. So, you- like you know, I, I I think of and and we went to Second Peter two earlier to talk about you know um, our understanding of the sons of God and daughters of men. The very next chapter. You have Second uh, Peter three nine. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What's so interesting is right before that, if you rewind just a handful of verses, what does it appeal to? Go to verse four following. They will say, "Where is the promise of His promise coming? Of his Forever coming. since the fathers fell asleep." The flood. Yeah, that's it. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Ding, 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 Old Testament narrative. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. They are using that story to capture this balance between God's justice and his mercy. And so if God is withholding action, and I would say this even in our day of time, the, you know, the return of Christ is not waiting for a certain amount of messiness. The world has always had plenty of messiness. It's waiting on a mission, right? Oh, that's good. Um, uh, uh, that seems to be Peter's point in Second Peter, but he makes that point about the eventual return of Christ in the context of the flood. And is it possible that the flood, this 120 years, God never stopped being sovereign. God have could God could have punished sin. It was tempered by mercy and a desire for some to come. And this, again, like we're saying, this mercy of God is an assumption over and over again. Matt, it's like you said, if, if, if they read their own stories the way that we so often read them out of the overarching narrative context, no one would ever appeal to God's mercy. They would just say God is sovereign, God can do what he wants to do, or they would say God is cold and, and, and it doesn't matter that we plead to his mercy, but that's not what they do. Right. Uh, it, it, you know, Even Noah is called what? Not just a, a, a steward of righteousness, but he's a called a preacher. A uh, yeah, right. a preacher, a herald, a kiros, uh from you know Cariso, a, a herald of righteousness. Why have him preach if there's no opportunity to respond? You know, I, I'm I'm a Southern Baptist pastor. I was raised in the Southern Baptist Church. Uh, we're not perfect, um, but one thing that most Southern Baptist churches do is at the end of our uh, you know worship time after the message. What do we do, Matt? We well, have that time of time to respond. Yeah, a time of response or invitation, and that's always a weird to know how to handle that time because I I've seen that time where hey maybe if you have a second or third verse when no one comes someone's going to come but overwhelmingly I, what seems to happen is if God is dealing with someone they're ready to respond immediately it's that Nineveh type oh my gosh I need to respond to God. And, and conversely, even if I stood up there, we, we don't typically do this, but even if I stood up there for 18 stanzas of I Surrender All, even if someone needed to respond, if their heart is not in a repentant place, it doesn't matter how long the invitation goes on, right? Right. So, I, you know, we look at the flood and like, what an outpouring of God's wrath, even though wrath and anger language are not used. It says God was grieved in the passage right. we'll look at next week. But... Should we maybe look at it and say, man, what an outpouring of God's patience for repentance. 
Nineveh had 40 days. They had 120 years, dot, 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 and one week. <laughs> well, it's just interesting to Gandalf, we were talking before the episode, how understanding 120 years to be an opportunity for preaching of the good news that there's a boat being built and a way to survive the flood, how the preaching of the good news and opportunity given for people to change their ways and join Noah on the ark is a totally different way of understanding uh, that as opposed to way so many of many of us have been taught, which is, well, that's just the cap for your lifespan. And the reason God put a cap on the lifespan is that we're sinful and God doesn't want to have, you know, really old sinful people because it's just, he's trying to put a limit on sin, which that can, can we have some chapter and verse for that? Like there, there's like nowhere, nowhere in the Bible. It says God shortens lifespans because of sin, uh, that he's trying to limit sin. Um, and also, in fact, I think the, it's, the Psalms wrestle with the opposite. Why does it look like the wicked prosper so often? That's right. It, it's um, so. It's just the. It's just the tone. It, it goes back to the tone. The tone before the flood is not. I'm going to shorten man's life because he's so wicked, and on top of it, I'm going to wipe everything out. It is rather. This is getting very bad. I'm going to send a preacher of righteousness and the good news of salvation through the ark. And I'm going to give him 120 years of a ministry. And then at the end of it, we're going to have a seven day long invitation with all the animals loaded up on the ark and an open door sitting up there, giving people the opportunity to respond like that. If that doesn't communicate patience and kindness of God, Certainly, it was undeserved. Uh, yeah, and I, I, don't, I don't know what does. Yeah, and I love I love that even the way the text, uh, Matt. We were talking about the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew. The way that the text, and we won't go too much into five through eight, but the the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew even kind of captures this, uh, not just what we see, but how we see. Like in the opening mm. verses of the chapter, it's the sons of God saw. The daughters of men, right? And this results in them taking them as wives. This results in this, you know, uh, unholy offspring that we've talked about, whatever the Nephilim right. are. Um, but then what, is, what does it say in verse 5? And then God saw. But in the Septuagint, it uses a participle rather than a finite verb. After seeing this, it's right. precise. You know, they saw something and made bad of it. God saw something and said, how do we... Not no pun intended. I'm not trying to steal segues back. How do we write the ship? <laughs> right. Um, uh, right. And this again, I think this all goes back this because this will this will play out again in Babel. It all goes back. All this language of seeing that keeps coming up goes back to creation, where God spoke something into existence and saw that it was good. Mm. Um, and and you know we talk about this opportunity for repentance. What does it say? What does it say that they could see things God? had put off bounds or out of reach and say, this looks good, let's take that. But they can't see their chance for repentance. I mean, you said jokingly earlier, at what point do you see a pair of giraffes walking by and say, you know, something might be up here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that moment when all the animals are parading through town, you know, that it, shouldn't they give somebody pause? <laughs> like uh, That is... 
Yeah, I, I think of the C.H. I think of the C.H. Spurgeon quote. He said, "By perseverance, the snail boarded the ark." At, right. what, what, at what point do you sell, say to yourself, that is one determined snail? Right. Th- this is not that DreamWorks picture turbo where the snail is really fast. That mm-hmm. is one determined snail. Why is he so bound and determined to get on that boat? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I, again, I just think I just think how we read it, again, if you treat it as an isolated story, you will miss and you will more likely question the character of God in judgment, and you will miss his mercy in that. Um Ironically, if you if you read these stories in the context of their narrative flow, you see both God's sovereignty and His mercy. Uh, that He He is in fact just in His judgments, precisely because He has provided an opportunity for mercy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and again, if, if if you're not in that repentant place, then it doesn't matter how long the offer stands, you're not going to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's quite appropriate. We're talking about sovereignty and mercy because we actually we have ten minutes left in this episode. But we actually do have a viewer question about this very topic. Oh, good. Um, and uh, thank you question... for thank you for not forwarding that to us in advance. Uh, actually, <laughs> behind the scenes, I did forward this to you in advance. Oh, behind the scenes, uh, yes. for, uh, don't listen. do not doubt me. For yes. I do read the memos. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've just learned that Nathan does not read the. Uh, just kidding. The, uh, pre- we appreciate your correspondence. Well, we we had a viewer asking about the nature of. Cain's mark. Oh, no, I do remember this we, one. I remember this one. Sorry. Because we did not elaborate very much on it. We didn't go into great detail. And I think that this is a good place to maybe address that because it, it it's hitting on the themes of that of that whole situation. Yeah, that, that was whether Cain's uh, marking was literal or symbolic, correct? Right. Correct. And in the text, it does not really say, and I think it's for this precise reason that we're we're talking about it. Right. It's because it's le- the the thing that the author wants you to take away is less about the nature of the mark itself and more about why it was given and the mercy of the person who gave it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, yeah. The, the interesting thing is uh, uh, the, the mark uh, and this will be used a couple times in important places in the Old Testament. It, it, again, it's never just what it is, right? It's always what it represents. And I, I, one of my favorite, the Hebrew word for mark here is, is pronounced like the way we would pronounce the English word oath. Uh, and it's, it's used to designate, again, not just something, but something that signifies something more. Uh, it's used for the scarlet thread in Rahab's window when you get into, uh, into uh, uh, Joshua chapter 2, right? Mm-hmm. And then again in Joshua chapter 6. And uh, so on the one hand, if you just walked up to Jericho and you had no context, you were like, why does homegirl have a scarlet thread hanging out of her window? But mm-hmm. what does that scarlet thread symbolize? It symbolizes, hey, she's harbored these spies and God made her a promise. What does that symbolize? It, it symbolizes that she has cast her lot with the God of Israel. And ironically, someone who should have been judged, Rahab, a citizen of Jericho, she and her family, much like Noah, will be saved. And then in the very next chapters, Akan, or Achan, as we usually say, and his family, who should have been saved, will be judged because they symbolically cast their lot with Jericho, partaking mm-hmm. of the forbidden plunder. And so, uh, again, I have no uh, objection to the mark of Cain being a literal mark, um, but I, I think, I, I'm almost certain, because I think that... Uh, listener asked about is this about race or skin color and there's just nothing to suggest it for me as and the, and the listener said they didn't think that either uh, but the emphasis is not so much on what 
the mark, how the mark appears, but on what the mark symbolizes or signifies, right? Right. And right. just to, to remind us, going back there in Genesis chapter 4, verse 14, Then the Lord said to them, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So what does the mark accomplish? The mark is a gift of mercy to a murderer. The mark is protecting the murderer from being murdered. If that, I mean, oh my goodness, here we are again. God is so kind. Like, we're going to get to the end of the flood narrative, and he's going to tell Noah, listen, when human beings shed each other's blood, they should be put to death by the hands of other human beings. Like, murderers need to be put to death for murdering. Well, God doesn't change. So what does this tell us? Well, this does not mean that God doesn't take murder seriously. It's again, it's just highlighting this mercy that God has, like, is God protecting Cain so he can go out and murder more? Of course not. God is showing Cain kindness that Cain does not deserve. And this is, this is, we're going to see over and over. Like the mark in Genesis 4 is not a mark of punishment. The mark is actually given as a mercy on the person who is who is being disciplined. I mean, he is sent to the wilderness. But but to but the listener to the listener who sent that in, I do envision it as something like the the war paint that Mel Gibson's William Wallace wears in the battle. <laughs> if, we're, if we're asking what I thought it looked <laughs> that, like, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. It probably yeah, I'm there. Wallace. Okay, sorry. Something physical. Something physical on his forehead. Uh, because probably that'd be my guess, but uh, we don't know that for sure. I'm just thinking about other, other things in the old Testament bearing on your forehead and ultimately thinking about revelation, having marks on your forehead, things like that. Uh, but we don't know for sure, but understanding the mark as a mercy, it's just, again, unbelievable to me, this God that is so frequently caricatured as this impatient, vindictive, capricious bully up in the skies in the Old Testament is very personally involved with even the villains of the story and is willing to not just cause it to rain on the unjust as well as the just, but to provide them protection. And what's the reason? It's Genesis chapter 6 to give people 120 years, to give an opportunity, because who knows, they might change their mind. And I think that's that's just, it's telling us something about God. and It's showing us something about God. Yeah, showing us something about God. Um, Nathan, you mentioned it earlier that I said it, because we talked about it in the, the off-recording moments before we started, is that the rest of the Bible people are going to tap into this. I can think about Abraham when he's having his conversation. Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah. With Sodom and Gomorrah saying, "Listen, I know the judge of all the earth Let is me find do what's a few right. righteous people. I know what That's you were right. willing I know what you were willing to do when Noah was righteous alone by himself in his generation. Yeah, Let me you find were willing a few right, yeah. Willing to wait. And so hold off the fire the way that you held off the water. That's right. It's just amazing to me. And the reason it's amazing to me is because I have read the Bible 
differently. And mm. I have just read the Bible differently. And I am continually amazed at how gracious God is. And I will even bring that home to my own personal life. I'm continually amazed how patient and kind God has been to me. Amen. And as I'm reading this story, I'm like, gosh, well, he didn't start that with me. This has been his habit from day one, giving well, people that, what they don't deserve. Well, and that's kind of raises. I'm glad Gandalf raised that particular listener question. Um, and we need to have an episode where we just do listener questions. So send those questions in. Um, but I'm glad, Gandalf, because that one kind of stands at that narrative turn right after Eden, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and you see how God's grace, we've talked about this, how God's grace to Cain is then abused by Lamech, right? Sure. We talked about right. that. And so, it, it, again, it's one of those, If man, if you lean into God's mercy at all, you're going to find more than you were looking for. But, ju- con, you know, just as God often gets a bad reputation for eventually giving justice and judgment. But the question is, how unjust would God be if the justice and judgment never came? Mm. Right? In other words, my wife and I, I'm I'm certainly firmer with our kids than she is because Haley is, I'm going to warn them nine times. And and Haley is so loving and compassionate. She's the better parent, so don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, but Haley will judge them, nine, I mean, warn them nine times before there's any consequence. And I'm like, no, if they don't respond halfway through my first warning, I'm bringing down the thunder. Uh, you know, grounded, you can't watch TV, all this stuff. And I say, Haley, all they hear when, you, when they get nine chances is how long they have before they face any consequence. But my kids know which, which parent is more compassionate. Mm-hmm. They, know which, they know which parent to go to when they have a bobo, Right. Right. Um, and uh, and we have a balance in our relationship. You know, I'm not really talking about that, but I'm just saying, what does it say about how they read these stories? What does it say about what they assumed about the character of God? That even you know, through long after the flood, in the midst of judgment, they repeatedly call out to a God who is mercy. It's always illuminating to hear the to hear these conversations and to uh, read the Bible in a new way that perhaps uh, I have not in, in the past. Yeah, just bear this in mind as we navigate the flood. When you hear about the flood, don't just think, okay, God is bringing down the hammer. Just think, well, he did give him 120 years. And and by the way, this is not the only facet of that, but that's one facet of how God is distinct, and this is a different story than what you'll hear elsewhere. And we will get to that next week when we start the great cataclysm of the flood. Until then, uh, please send us your questions or remarks, whatever you want to, at betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com, and we'll see you next week. See you. You guessed it. Shalom. (laughs) Like a rock, Nathan.